0: You know, one thing that, that always uh, struck me was, is, is a quotation from Heinrich Heine. Um, Heine was a German poet and playwright um, who lived in the uh, 18th century. Um, he was Jewish, and he wrote in one of his plays, he said, Dort, wo man bischer men am Ende auch Menschen. What does that mean? What that translates as is where they burn books, they will end up also in burning people. And of course, that's exactly what happened in Nazi Germany. Yes. Uh, first, they burned all the, the books of, of uh, uh, people that the authors that the Nazis didn't like, including Heine, Heine's books. Uh, but then they also ended up burning people. Good morning. Good morning, Abby. How are you? I'm very well, thanks.
1: Good, nice to see you and thank you for joining me. Thank
0: you. Yeah,
1: I got a got an interesting discussion plan. Thank you for being here. A bit about your background is you're a professor emeritus at Western Law School and you taught at many other universities along the way, specifically in the field of wills and trust and estates most notably. Uh, your career was for the most part in academia, which means that you are a very frequent publisher, including of several books, Usterhof on Trust, Usterhof on Wills and Succession. Uh, you are what I consider a voice of reason in the estates community of lawyers. Your articles, which I endeavor to read, are a way to learn the depths of the law and keep up to date on current events. Just a note, so all the blogs at uh, the Well Partners Law Firm, all very relevant, good good blogs and a useful resource. Um, we'll try to touch upon the two main parts of your career, um, the academic wills and estates academic, if I may call it such a thing. Uh, and then the second part as counsel at uh, at Well Partners. That sounds like a, a very incredible career you have. But before we get to the career aspect, I always like to start by asking about your background. If you want even pre-university days, I'm curious to know uh, what prompted you to study law. How did even you come to study law?
0: Ah, very good question, Avi. Um, I, um, I was born in the Netherlands in 1940, uh, just a couple of months before uh, Germany invaded the Netherlands. Um, and then I came to Canada with my family in 1952. Yeah. So I was 12 years old uh, I had uh, I had uh, undergraduate, sorry, uh, elementary school education in in uh, the Netherlands. So I uh, I know the, the Dutch language. Um, so then, of course, I had my high school in Canada, and then my university, um, Western, and. Um, and I started, in the first year, of course, was one of those years where you had to take a certain number of uh, subjects. One of them was economics, and I got a very good grade in it. And so I decided to uh, to uh, focus on economics. Yeah. So in the second year, uh, I think I had three economics courses. But then I realized uh, that economics in the upper years is mostly uh Focused on mathematics. Mm-hmm. And Abby, I suck when it comes to math.
1: <laughs> Me as well. That uh, pushes us to law, hey? <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: yeah. right. So then, the uh, uh, Western Law School was then in its second year of operation. And so one of my classmates from economics and I decided we'd walk over to the law school and uh, see what that was all about. And so I filled out an application. And I was accepted. So after two years of undergraduate work. Um, So the answer to your question, uh, how did I decide to study law and become a lawyer, it was a bit of an accident, actually. (laughs) Uh But a very happy one, it turns out. Right. So, yeah.
1: And how was that uh, experience? You enjoyed the the law school experience and... um... Uh, I mentioned before that your career was largely in academia. Were you attracted to the academic aspect of law from those law school days, or uh, you know how did that come about?
0: Um, I was attracted to academia from those years. Yes, I had some very good teachers in law school. Um, I, I'd like just like to mention a couple. The the first is um, Dean Ivan Rand. Uh, Rand was a uh, retired Queenie Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, and then uh, was then regarded, frankly, as as sort of the best on the bench. Uh, Perhaps that's a bit of an exaggeration on my part, but uh, but we loved it. He was a great teacher. Um, He taught me three courses actually. Uh, In first year, it was history, uh, history of law, and uh, second. Uh, And second year, it was uh, equity and constitutional law. And, of course, he was an expert on constitutional law. So that was wonderful. The other one, the other teacher that I want to mention is Ralph Skane, who uh, who went on from Western to then, uh, went back to practice, actually, but then he taught uh, for the rest of his career at U of T. Um, Ralph taught me both wills and estates. And that's where uh, I got my love for those two topics. Well, So, uh, but then, yes, uh, so I I became interested in in, uh, academic uh, study. Um, uh, When when, when it was, I guess, towards the end of my second year, I approached Dean Rand about it, and he said, and he gave me very good advice. He said, look, uh, uh, I, you know, that, that's that's a good thing to do, but I encourage you first to, to go into practice of law and see what that's like. Because he says, if you don't do that, you'll always wonder what you miss.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And it was excellent advice. So I went the, the route of uh, the bar admission course, uh, articling bar admission course, and then called to the bar, which was in uh, 1966. And then I practiced with a, uh, a firm in London for two and a half years. Um, I also articled with them, an excellent firm. Um, and uh, but but in the meantime, you know, I, I wanted to continue my my academic studies. Yeah, sure. So been, I finished off my BA actually uh, part time while I was working uh, for the firm, and uh, and then. Uh, then I went to uh, U of T to do my master's, um, and then I- uh, uh, did, did
1: you have to specialize to do your master's? Did you pick wills and estates at that point?
0: Um, I did take, uh, I didn't take wills, because I focused on that a lot. I did take a trusts course and a couple of other courses as well. Not from Skene because of course he had taught me at Western, but he was there by then.
1: Okay. And your practice, uh, those few years of practice, were you really trying to uh, specialize at that point in the uh, trust field, wills and trusts, or were you just trying to gain a bit of practical experience?
0: Um, I, no, I can't say that I was, I was really trying to specialize at that point. You know, when you're a young lawyer, you've got to do most anything that, that uh, is presented to you. Right. Um, but I knew that I was not a barrister. I was a solicitor. Mm. Um, so I did a lot of work in real estate transactions, uh, corporate law, corporate commercial, mm-hmm. and uh, and also some, uh, some wheels of estates. Wow. Um, and I really enjoyed the latter.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's kind of what prompted you to return to what you always wanted to do, uh, which was teaching. And uh, you had such a, an outstanding career as a, a professor, as an academic, you were associate dean, you were a, a, a dean at some point, and you were involved in all sorts of uh, universities and teaching arrangements, and um, it, it, can you talk a bit about your experience there and looking back on it?
0: Uh, yes, um, I started teaching at the University of Windsor, I taught there for three years, and then I moved to, back to uh, Western, yeah. And that's where I spent the rest of my academic career. Um, you know, when you first start teaching, it's, uh, well, it's not an easy thing to start to do, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's something entirely new. Um, you've you've had mentors uh, in law school, of course, and that helped a lot. Um, but it took me a while to get into writing and publishing so the first two three four years are really you're really focusing on uh, on how to prepare properly for your lectures how to teach uh, effectively and uh, get the, get the material across to your students uh, but but then I started to write and to um, also, do some um, some work for other bodies, especially the Law Reform Commission of Ontario, uh, and that also, of course, involved a lot of research and writing. So all of that was was uh, right up my path. Right, um, and then uh, you know, towards the uh, mid seventies, I started to to write articles and, and books and. Uh, And then ultimately, I I wrote uh, my Wills and Trusts text, which were first published in in 1980. Uh, Trusts is now in its ninth edition, and uh, Wills' ninth edition will be published next spring.
1: Unbelievable. I want to get a signed copy. (laughs) <laughs> at some point.
0: Other than you,
1: yeah, it's it's really unbelievable um, the amount that you publish, and it sounds like you had to really work on that at the early part of your career, the first two years. Um, you know, I'm in the early part of my career. How did you develop such a uh, an output, if you can call it that? You know, the first part of anyone's career, especially as a lawyer, is all about input, receiving information trying to learn as much as you can and I think that tipping point what turns you into uh, an expert or a better lawyer more experienced lawyer so to speak is when you start with the output and that's one of the things I'm trying to do over here is uh, output of information but uh, it's, I'm, I'm a drop in the ocean compared to your output um, you know even until today you publish articles what is it uh, once every two weeks or whatever it is and each one I look at is uh, well thought out and researched and, and clear. And how, how did that skill develop? And how even do you go about it today, uh, producing so much?
0: Well, um, I think to begin with, I should, I should say that I've always loved learning. Mm-hmm. Um, my family uh, was a reading family. All of us read. And it was it was for enjoyment, of course, but also for learning, and that continued when in in law school uh, and then in university. Uh, or sorry, I said law school; I meant high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I had a good time in, in high school. I loved the English classes in particular and history. Um, in those days, you know, you had to memorize rings of, of uh, Shakespeare and uh, various uh, poetry and so on. I can still recite them. I won't bore you with that now, but <laughs> but I can. Um, uh, and so it's the it's the it's almost a need to learn, Abby, um, that that I had. And then when you start to teach, that that need to learn evolves also in a need to pass that on to, to uh, your students, to a younger generation, if you will. Um, and, and so that's why, that's why you research. That's also why you write, so that others can benefit from, from your work, from your studies.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and, and they are, no question about it. I, I feel that's part of the duty as you gain more knowledge and experience is to share it. That's, yeah. that's definitely part of it. Have you ever had some sort of a writer's block, they call it? Oh, yes, yes, yes.
0: Uh, it, it's, uh, it's not at all uncommon, I think, for most people. In my case, you know, I, I may have finished some major project, and I know I've got something else that's coming up and I've got to work on it. Uh, but it just doesn't work. It's not coming together. Um, so I leave it for a week or two and then, um, I may still not have the, the thoughts in place to start working on it, but I'll, I'll just start to write. And, uh, it may not make all that much sense to begin with, but I'll just write away. And, uh, and then um, I'll print it up, and then the next day I'll look at it, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll probably discard most of it, but I can save some of it. And then things starts to start to gel for me, mm-hmm. and I can work away on, on uh, you know, doing a good job with it.
1: Wow, well, amazing. <laughs> so, even-
0: uh, Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I don't hear you. I, I was going to say, even then, uh, it requires a lot of editing afterwards. Um, You know, I I can't just write a piece of of work like an article and submit it for publication. It requires rewriting, uh, editing, rewriting again, and and then finally, you know, when I'm satisfied with it, uh, then it gets submitted for publication.
1: Right. Yeah, it's it's a piece of art, a sculpture. Yeah. You have to keep uh, keep amending it. And you've also been, um, you know, I call it a, a legal innovator. You shed light on future events, you know, how things should be. Um, I, this question could go in many different ways, but I'll start by asking Retroactive, have you seen major developments in the state's world throughout your career that you'd like to comment on? I, I spoke to Don Carr, he was my first guest, and he said, uh, he was involved in the multiple wills, which is a huge, a huge thing. Um, you know, if if there haven't been changes in the past, the follow-up question is: Do you think there should be any changes going forward? And, and I'll, I'll I'll just comment one thing about the the electronic wills and all the software that's available. Do you have a take on that?
0: Uh, in fact, I was going to talk about electronic wills. Uh, you know, in the estates area, there haven't been that many. Changes. Uh, car is right, of course, about the multiple wills, and that was because of uh, of the uh, huge increase in, in the state administration tax. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then people uh, decided to to have a primary will and a secondary will, one of which is probated, the other is not, right. to avoid having to pay so much tax. Uh, but but there aren't many of those changes in wills. We had the Succession Law Reform Act uh, passed in. Uh, in 1975, I think. Huh? No, 1977. Okay. Uh, and and that introduced some some major changes, including, for example, holograph wheels. Um, but they were not. Uh, oh, they were not sort of earth shattering changes. They were just developments from from uh, the past. Um, uh, but things are moving much more quickly now. And, and, you know, when, when we think about it, uh, so much of our work is done electronically now. I mean, I sit at my computer most days and, and, and type whatever I have to say on my computer, right? right. And, and then I pass that on electronically to a publisher or, uh, or to my law firm, as the case may be. Um, and, and all of this is stored electronically as well. Mm-hmm. We haven't done that with wills, right? Uh, uh, But now, because of COVID-19, things have have started to change, Mm -hmm. particularly because all of a sudden we realized, hey, you know, people can no longer execute their wills because we have to maintain social distancing, so we can't go to the people, so we can't have them in our offices either because of those restrictions, so what can we do instead? And so, uh, Ontario was one of the first, uh, but all of the other provinces followed as well um, by passing a ministerial order under emergency legislation that uh, permits a virtual execution of wills and powers of attorney and so on and so forth. Those were... Temporary solutions, there were good solutions that needed to be made, but of course they don't work for everybody, especially for seniors who really need and want to make wills. It doesn't necessarily work for them because they don't have access to electronic uh, devices, right? And they're, they're not they are not capable often of... of, of uh, of um, accessing them, so other things need to uh, need to happen as well. So, uh, electronic wills is one of them, okay. and uh, uh, that's been discussed for quite a number of years. Uh, there are now uh, a couple of jurisdictions jurisdictions in the U.S. Florida and Nevada that have uh, electronic wills legislation. There's also a Uniform Wills Act in, this, in the United States. And uh, the uh, Uniform Law Conference of Canada has also got a working group, which is well advanced on proposing similar legislation. And then most recently in British Columbia, they passed legislation to be part of their wills statute uh, on electronic wills as well. So we're moving ahead. And uh, there's interest also, for example, here in Ontario, about uh, electronic wills. I don't know if it's going to happen soon, but the interest is there.
1: Uh, can you just clarify what that means exactly? Electronic will means it's stored electronically and there's no hard copy. Uh, what does it mean regarding signatures? What, what is it, what's the definition of an electronic will?
0: <laughs> there are many definitions, actually. Yeah. But you've covered the essentials. Uh, it is stored electronically in a safe way. Uh, and uh, it, there's only one copy, of course, that is stored. Yeah. Um, then, if amendments have to be made, those that can be done, and then the original is changed, of course. But there is a there is a, a track that can be followed. So you have the original, and then you have the amendments made. Um, the signatures. Are still required, but they're electronic signatures. So, like they're like the signatures that that are being done now, uh, electronically, virtually, right? Uh, but they're still necessary. Uh-huh. Um, so that hasn't changed. Um,
1: and do you think there's going to need to be? Uh, a certain uh, digital custodian, or the client can keep their one. Custodian. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh,
0: It's uh, those are mostly commercial organizations now. That may change. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but yes, the, the the need for secure uh, storage of of these bills obviously is very important. Mm-hmm. There is another. Uh, Point to notice too, and that uh, you actually mentioned it. Uh, the uh, the will is is entirely uh, uh, electronic, but it is capable of being printed, and that's still necessary, of course, in uh, in in the in the probate environment that we're working with today. The court wants to see a printed copy, but that's changing too, because today and the uh, in the uh, wills practice you know you can submit uh, for example a probate application electronically right. as you right so so all of these things are changing and that's mostly because of the covid-19 restrictions yeah so there are there are uh, events that cause these changes just like the multiple wills that was caused by the huge increase in and state administration tax now, COVID nineteen is causing these changes, and and they're good changes. You know, we 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 need to we need to uh, move with times. Yes,
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, the the, <laughs> wills, signing digitally. I, I'm the, the solicitor as well. I've done a few of those, uh, remote signings by counterpart and putting it all together, but. Uh, I must just note that I think today is October, October 21st. It should be expiring the emergency order tomorrow, and I've heard nothing about whether it's extended or not. So from tomorrow onwards, I think people are in the dark a little bit over there. Yeah. Do, do you, have you heard anything?
0: No, I haven't. Um, I do know that it's a matter that uh, the Ontario Attorney General uh, has under consideration. Right. a couple of... Um, um, uh, virtual chats with members from the bar, um, where he sought advice on various things, uh, and and that was one of them. But I haven't heard uh, what what's happening with the virtual signing. Another thing that's under consideration is introducing uh, the uh, uh, the power to uh, to rectify a will uh, when it's not quite up to snuff. You know. Uh, uh, the execution was. There's some problems with execution, um, and virtually every other province has enacted such legislation. So, so we're out in left field, and uh, and you know the the feeling is that we need need that kind of legislation as well. Yeah. So again, a, a change uh, that's important, and that I think is certainly coming in Ontario. Uh
1: uh-huh. Very interesting. Uh, changing times, if you will. There's, there's yeah. a lot of developments on the way. Um, I, I don't know if it's fair to ask you about other jurisdictions, uh, but maybe uh, as part of your research, you, you know what's going on in other places. I, I'm a lawyer in Israel. I, I just spoke to one of my state's colleagues there recently. And it's interesting how different countries have dealt with the COVID um, over there. Um, I, I don't know if it's dealt with the best way because there has not been a virtual allowance of a virtual signing. So um, people who need a will now are just out in the dark. And um, what the government's done, it's interesting, is promoted um, individuals to do it themselves, which means they provided a guideline of how to make a holographic will, how to uh, find two witnesses if you're going to type it up yourself, um, and lawyers are left uh, either out of the picture or just providing a will and giving instructions for the client how to get it signed themselves. So um, I am impressed with the way the Ontario government's dealt with it, uh, allowing these things, emergency orders. Um, I, I'm hoping this will accelerate things for the future and allow... Us to continue the whole digital world, but do you have comment on other jurisdictions and how they've dealt with this? Are you aware of such uh, how how people have dealt with uh, COVID in general?
0: Um, I, I have. I'm not too familiar with it, uh, I, 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 You know, I read the information about other common law jurisdictions. Yeah, uh, and they've taken similar approaches to what we've done in Canada. Yeah. Uh, I'm concerned about leaving it up to the test leaders themselves to, to prepare a holograph will. Yes, of course they can do that, but as you well know, uh, holograph wills often uh, cause all kinds of problems, interpretation, mm-hmm. uh, problems with the proper execution, that sort of stuff. Right. Uh, so you're asking for trouble, there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, a- another question about changes is um, about the law itself substantively. So you mentioned the Succession Law Reform Act is from uh, 1977. And uh, I know the UK, I think in 2014, updated their uh, intestate laws to kind of more accurately reflect society. So they uh, excluded uh, parents and siblings and included a common law spouse, for example. Uh, They also have this preferential share, which they uh, increased and indexed to inflation. So I've, I've heard about the Succession Law Reform Act. That's the law for those who don't know that applies to uh, our wills and estates. Do you do you have a comment that uh, that should be updated in any way?
0: Oh yes, I, I think uh, that it should be updated very much indeed. And I've said so to the uh, to our attorney general. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's more than a quarter century old. facts. Uh, uh what is it uh 45 years old something That's like right. that and there've been a lot of changes since it was enacted and some you've mentioned uh um common law spouses are not not included of course you can make a will in which you you make uh, in which you benefit your common law spouse right but uh when you die intestate the common law spouse is not included mm-hmm. um in all of the Western provinces, uh, I believe, um, the intestacy laws include common-law spouses. Um, it's um, The drafting can be difficult because uh, what do you do, for example, if you have common-law spouse, but you also have a um, a former, uh, you know, you still have a, a an actual spouse, although you don't live with that person. Um, and then when you've got um, uh, you've got the preferential share, who gets it, right? So careful drafting is is uh, required in those circumstances. But yes, those are reasons to uh, to suggest that we need to, need to revise the legislation. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Um, there's other, by, the, by me being a foreign lawyer as well as an Ontario lawyer, I have insight into how uh, other jurisdictions practice. And one of the major ways they practice in Israel, for example, is for the drafting lawyer to insert themselves as the trustee of the will. They seem most familiar with the, the financial circumstances of the person, and they were involved in drafting the will, so they feel like they could administer the will. Here, it's frowned upon. question is, do you have any uh, practice? I know you're, you're not a practical lawyer, but even from an academic point of view, any practical
0: uh, nuances, challenges, or issues you want to discuss? Um. <coughs> You know, when when you, as a solicitor, suggest to a client, um, "Why don't you appoint me as executor of this will?" Because you know I know all about you and your affairs. Uh, you're 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 in a conflict of interest, right? That's that's improper. Um, on the other hand, if the client says, "I want you as my executor," that's a bit of a different story. Um, and then as a, as a solicitor, you have to point out, well, look, you know, uh, this sort of thing is, is not really, uh, it's really frowned upon in Ontario. It can be done, but, but you have to be aware of that. Right. That's your obligation to appoint, to point out to your client, right? I'm, I'm really in a conflict of interest. Um, so in general, I would say don't do it. It's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Because of the conflict of interest, right? Right. What's happened? Yeah. No, often it's not. Often it's not. You're dealing with uh, with uh, a single lawyer in a small community, and um, you know that lawyer looks after after all the clients' affairs. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Right. So, um, talk a bit about your current role at Well Partners. I mean, Well Partners are really a real leading estate litigation firm in Toronto I, I, I love some of the people that work there and uh, just discuss your role of, of counsel there, what, what exactly do you do?
0: Ah, good question um, let me see, after I retired at Western um, 2005 I, I, uh, I moved to Toronto and, and I then taught uh, trusts at U of T as an adjunct mm-hmm. for about seven years I think and that was that was good, but uh, oh, you know, when you, uh, as an academic, your pension isn't all that great, so a little more income doesn't uh, doesn't hurt. Yeah. Uh, and frankly, uh, teaching as an adjun- adjunct doesn't doesn't earn you that much money. So I had to be talking to Kim, uh, Kim Whaley, at some point, a lunch and learn kind of thing, I think it was. Uh, and I, you know, I said I, I really think that I'd like to. Get back into practice a bit, and she said, "Well, come to my firm," uh, and uh, and so I've never looked back since. Uh, that's been a most uh, fortuitous, in some sense, that that I ended up with with well partners, uh, but also a, a very welcome event because um, Kim has been very good to me. She's welcomed me with open arms into the firm um I, I you know to be fair i think i think she and and uh, the younger members of the firm rely on me for for legal advice and and i enjoy doing that too um uh, but um it, it's it's opened all kinds of possibilities for me for for one the blogs you mentioned i blog regularly uh on the on the web uh on the uh, well blog site um on new cases, cases from all over the world, including of course the Privy Council and House of Lords cases, um, and I wouldn't necessarily have had that opportunity without being counsel to uh, to well partners. By the way, a counsel uh, when you're counsel to a firm, it can mean any number of things. In my case, it means um, that. Uh, I do opinions for the firm on uh, cases that they're working on where they need some um, further input on the law. Uh, I also do opinions for other lawyers, by the way, who, who contact me through Well Partners, and I'll do opinions for them as well. Uh, but that's done through Well Partners, in other words. Um, um, and then... Uh, um, Kim has me involved in doing um, uh, CPD programs on a regular basis and uh, also giving lectures on a regular basis. Uh, I did some lectures at Western, for example, um, last year um, because, well, partners put on an, uh, a state education course there, so that was fun. Um, and then just quite recently, as you know, I did a lecture at Austin Hall Law School. That wasn't done through well. They just approached me and, and that was fun too. Uh, so yeah, that's sort of, that's, those are the sorts of things that I do at, at Well Partners. That's great. It's fun actually working with, uh, especially with the younger members of the firm. Um, um, it's embarrassing in in some ways because they kind of put me on a pedestal and I, I don't feel comfortable being on a pedestal. Uh, but, you know, they ask me, they ask for my views and, and uh, I'm always happy to to help them out. Yeah, great,
1: great guys, Daniel and, and Matt specifically. I know personally, good, really good yeah. lawyers, good lawyers yeah. and, and good people. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so explain more maybe about these legal opinions. It's, you know, the, the main part of what you do there. So, um, it, what type of cases require a legal opinion? Maybe you can uh, give an example with some facts, if you don't mind. And then, what, what, a, what kind of a, what does a legal opinion do to a case? Have, have your legal opinion swayed the scales of justice one way or another? You can uh, start with the cases. Give us a couple of examples.
0: Okay. Um, the opinions can, uh, can be needed in any number of cases, cases that involve just a small amount of money or cases that involve millions. Um, what they are about, typically, is uh, uh, what the law on a particular point is, because what the judge at first instance said doesn't sound right, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It seems to be off, and so um, one of the parties, of course, wants to appeal. And then, of course, what's what are you going to appeal on? And so then uh, they ask me, "Well, what do you think about this this uh, judgment at first instance? Is it is it right or is it wrong? And and how is it wrong? And how should we? What issues should we focus on during the appeal? Mm-hmm. And and." Uh, I've worked over the years on, on, on quite a number of, of really interesting things uh, that, you know, where you, get, you really get your hands on something that, that is, uh, is, is very current, but also very important to, to clients, and, uh, and you can give it your input. Now, when you do this, <coughs> excuse me, um, when I do this, uh, I don't necessarily know what impact that has, what 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 my work has, on um, on the outcome, um, because the judge uh, on the appeal is not going to say, hey, you know, Ostraff did a great job <laughs> in this appeal, uh, because because the judge won't know about it. It's it's uh, the the barristers who present the case on appeal who who will use my uh, my opinion. Um, uh, and, uh, and I like to think that it, it, uh, that it works, and it, it has worked indeed in, in a number of cases, uh, with, with, uh, with good results, uh, but, but I don't get the credit for it in the case itself, in the judgment. You're,
1: you're, you're, uh, you're a doctor, you're the equivalent of a medical opinion in a personal injury case.
0: Yeah, something like that. <laughs> nice. As you know, Abby, uh, my opinion cannot be produced in, in court, right? Um, why, why is that? Uh, well, because um, I'm regarded as an expert, right? But um, a domestic expert cannot give testimony in a domestic case. So for example, uh, if someone is carrying on a case in Ontario and wants some expert evidence on wills or trusts um, and wants me to testify in court, I have to tell the counsel I can't do that because, uh, uh, because the, the law of evidence says that that's impossible. You know, it's because we have this, we maintain this, uh, is this, uh, this cute fiction that uh, the judge knows all the law, right? And you and I know that that's not the case. But that part of that fiction, too, is that they engage counsel to tell the judge what the law is. But they don't need an expert. They don't want an expert for that purpose. I can testify about Ontario law in a Quebec court. And I have done that. Uh, but not in an Ontario court. So, my, my opinions, in other words, are only for the benefit of uh, of counsel arguing the case.
1: Oh, I don't know that. That's interesting. And maybe that's because I'm not the expert, uh, just <laughs> yet at least. Um, so, how would one get an Ontario expertise? You'd have to bring someone, for example, from Quebec to testify in an Ontario court about Ontario law. Is that what you're saying? Oh,
0: no, no, no. Uh, if if the issue in the Ontario case involves Quebec law, then you can get a Quebec lawyer to testify about Quebec. Right. Got it. Yeah. But nobody. Nobody uh, can testify. On Ontario law in Ontario. Got
1: it. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Interesting. So you have a real niche role over there. Yes. Wow. Yes. Fascinating.
0: Well, sometimes uh, I do get recognised. I I, uh, I acted. Uh, I was asked to to uh, be involved in uh, preparing an appeal in an Alberta case. Uh, that was in two thousand and. Uh, Oh, two thousand and six, something like that, uh, uh, and that was uh, that was about a trust issue, um, and I worked with counsel there in uh, in Edmonton, uh, and uh, he very graciously said in the factum that it was prepared with the assistance of Albert Osterhoff. Wow, well, that doesn't happen very often.
1: Uh, gosh Nice. Well, I've seen your long list of recognitions elsewhere, so you're oh. definitely <laughs> covered in that sense. <laughs> um, you, you've been a, a, such a mentor to the younger lawyers, you even speak about the ones at the firm, but um, throughout your whole career as a teacher. Um, do you have any advice to the younger generation of lawyers among us, law students, et cetera?
0: Um, yes. One of them is, and I used to tell my students this already when I was teaching still, um, one of them is, you know, they used to say the law is a jealous mistress, uh, which is probably a bit uh, um, improper to say now, I don't know. But at any rate, uh, it, it does mean that it can occupy virtually all of your time and and all of your thoughts. But what I would say to them is, look, you know, you have other responsibilities. Uh, and those are, in first instance, principally your spouse and your family. Spend time with them. Make time for them, right? Law isn't everything. Law is very important. It's, it's your career, but it's not everything. Uh, Find a good balance in your life, in other words. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've occasionally had, had had emails from students that I taught years ago reminding me that I that I said that to them at one point and appreciating it. So
1: definitely great advice. Keep your priorities in check. Yeah. Um, the,
0: the, other, the other advice uh, that I would give to young lawyers is uh, Ah, uh, how shall I put it? Uh, be, you know, it, it's, it's hard to put this into words, perhaps. Uh, the word probity comes to mind, you know? Uh, be the... Uh, Inquisitive, uh, interesting. Uh, no, interesting. not... Not in, not inquisitive, but but rather have integrity, be upright uh, uh, in your character, be conscientious, be honest, be sincere. In other words, uh, be a person that somebody can count on, uh, somebody that people know that your word is your bond. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that is so important because if if people know that they can't count on you, if, if your word isn't worth a thing, then your reputation is gone.
1: That's absolutely right. I could not and, agree more.
0: And that reputation is what gets you through life.
1: Beautiful. Uh,
0: anything else to add? Um, yeah, um, it's what you know. It's 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 sort of a religious concept, right? Yeah. Uh, to love your neighbor as yourself. What it means is you've got to be there for the other person. You've got to listen, um, not not tell them what to do. You've got to listen, advise them if if you wish, but but you be there for them and help them, and and let them know that. They can count on you. Beautiful obligation, That's an obligation right? we all have. Yeah. yeah. Really beautiful. I think that's a
1: lesson in life more than anything else is, you know, be be that good person you spoke of uh, with all those lovely adjectives. That's what life's about. In, in addition to being a lawyer, but but life itself. Um, and,
0: and when we when we when we talk about uh, that sort of thing. I think back when I first started to practice in the the uh, mid-1960s, that was in London. And you know then, um, uh, the practice was much more uh, uh, verbal rather than written. So if a person said, uh, this is what I'll do, you could count on that person. There were a couple of firms that you you insisted on having things in writing. But today, it is quite different, isn't it? Yes. Everything, everything is done in writing. And I think we've lost a lot because of that.
1: It's an interesting perspective,
0: yes. Uh, hopefully
1: we can might get, get some of it back, maintain our integrity, and that's it'll come back a little bit. Uh, I have two more quick questions for you, if I may. One is... Uh, I just asked you to give advice to uh, younger people, younger lawyers in general. Can you give advice to the public about the importance of wills and estate planning? Someone who's dedicated their whole career to wills, trusts, and estates? Can you talk about the importance of that?
0: Yes, um, it saddens me that so many people don't make wills and and there are various reasons for that. I know uh, for some uh it brings the uh, the uh, the idea of death closer, right? And and that scares them. For others, well, you know, I'll, I'll get it done. I'm, I'm planning to do it, of course, uh, but you know, it just didn't get done. It's important because, uh, yes, when you're you're a single person, uh, it's not going to matter so much, of course. Well, but but it might if you have a fair bit of money and and you you really would like that to go to charity or to members of your family and so on, you want to, to uh, say, have a say and who gets what, then you need a will. Right. Uh, but certainly, once you uh, are married and, uh, or have a partner and you, you start having a family, uh, then you, you do need a will for sure to, to indicate you know, how your estate is going to be distributed. Um, you don't want to leave it to to, uh, to an intestacy when we have rules that will say where the estate goes, but they probably won't uh, won't agree with with what your wishes would be. So you need a will. And certainly, of course when you when you get older still and perhaps are, have amassed somewhat of an the estate, uh, then clearly you want to you uh, want to uh, uh, have a will to that says exactly where your property should go. And also, then, you should seek advice from professionals, not just lawyers, but perhaps also accountants, um, uh, to, um, to ensure that uh, the tax can be minimized as, as much as possible within the law. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Definitely. So, you know, as, as, as a legal profession, we, we, do, we do inform people that, wills are important. We even have a wills month where the, the Ontario Bar Association had a wills month, right?
1: Yeah, next, next month, uh, in November.
0: Right. Oh, right, uh, but it doesn't seem to help enough. Right. We're so, not getting at the, at the population with
1: it. Right, so this is my penultimate question. What, what can we do to change that? It's such an important thing, yet statistics show something like 50% of Canadians do have a will, don't have a will, either way. Why, why is that number so low? It's such an important document to have. It's not that expensive. I hear complaints about people spending more money on their uh, suit blazer than their will. And uh, it's just uh, that that's not having your priorities in order. So, is there anything do you think we could and should do to educate the public and get that percentage
0: higher? Uh. One thing occurs to me. Uh, we talked about uh, everything being electronic now, right? Right. Um, why not? Why not put the message out there in um, in electronic form, much more than we do now? And also, we can we can do it on um, on radio messages, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I usually listen to classical FM, and I hear all kinds of advertisements on there about all kinds of things. Uh, but, but why can't we put a, a slide on there about making a wheel and why it's important? It's a great
1: idea. I'm going to explore it. Good. La- last question I have for you, and you've been great and informative, and, and thank you. But uh, as a last question, I know from reading your articles, you are a wordsmith to the nth degree. So uh, the question is, if you had one big billboard in Times Square that uh, the biggest one there, and you could put anything you want on there. Or perhaps someone gave you a free page in the ORs, Ontario reports. What, what do you want to uh, put out there for everybody to see? Could be a quote, a favorite saying, um, any sort of adage that you that comes to mind.
0: Oh dear. I hadn't given that any thought, Andy. Uh, there are so many, so many things that, uh, that would work. Uh,
1: I'll give you a, a few if you'd like. Okay. You're going, you're going to give me a few? No, I'm going to let you give me a few. Sorry. I see. If, if, uh, if you can't narrow it down. And if you'd like, we can skip it all together. The, the other question which I try to elicit from you is uh, book recommendations. I know you're an author yourself, so besides your own books, which are most certainly recommended, do you, you, know, you mentioned you're an avid reader. Do you have any titles that pop out that have perhaps influenced your life, your thinking? Uh,
0: yes. Um, in the nature of things, I don't read a lot of nonfiction anymore because I read a lot. In the law, of course, I do read nonfiction biography, mm-hmm. Biography, for example, um, you know, like the uh, the uh, biographies uh, uh, written by uh, Eric Matus on um, on um, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The um, you don't know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He, uh-huh. he was a German Lutheran uh, theologian and he was implicated in the, uh, in the plot to kill his, uh, Hitler. And so he was arrested, and uh, ultimately, he paid the ultimate price when they uh, executed him in, uh, in Flossenburg a couple of days before the end of the war. Um,
1: so You're that- gonna have to share that title. I'm, I'm gonna uh, make a list of your titles to share. Uh, okay. And it, it, that's, a, that's a great one. It, it sounds like right up my alley uh, oh. as, a, as a reading preference. I, I, I'm all into that as well. Uh, the author's
0: name is Metaxas, M-E-T-A-X-A-X. Okay. Yes, sorry, ends with an S. And uh, the title is Bonhoeffer, that's B-O-N-H-O-E-F-F-E-R, Okay. And the subtitle as well, but I won't bother with that. The other one that he wrote that I like very much was "Amazing Grace," and that was a book about William Wilberforce, who was, as you probably know, instrumental in uh, in um, seeking for the abolition of uh, of slavery. Mm-hmm. So, so those certainly those are the biographies. Beyond that, I read mostly novels. Uh, Oh, some authors that I really love and always go back to are Anthony Burgess. Yeah, uh, Anthony Powell, uh, who wrote that twelve-volume uh, "Dance to the Music of Time." It's 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 a serious uh, it's a, it's a novel about uh, about uh, um you know, ethics, you know how you behave in society, that sort of thing. Tolkien, of course. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I love medieval mysteries. So, you know, Alice Peters and many number of others. Uh, A good uh, legal author, by the way, is, I don't know if you've heard of her, she's Sarah Caudwell, C-A-U-D-W-E-L-L. She was an English barrister, and she wrote four um, four legal mysteries, um, which focused on, or which featured A number of uh, young barristers practicing in Lincoln's Inn. Really good stuff, you know, well written. I only read read stuff that's well written. Of course. And and especially if it has classical references in it. So, those, certainly, Hilary Mantel, I love her stuff. You know, the Wolf Hall trilogy about Thomas Thomas Cromwell. That's good stuff. Let me see. Oh, some recent books that I read. Again, great stylists. Delia Owens, Where the Crawdads Dads Sing.
1: Well, I, I haven't read these. I'm still at the, the non-fiction phase of my life. Yeah. And I look forward to getting to that uh, fiction phase when I can turn off all the legal stuff. But uh-huh. uh, I, I'm going to need a list of those and I'll, I'll include I them th- in the
0: notes. I can send them to you. One other one I wanted to mention uh, was... Uh, Uh, a book by Ariel Lawhon, L-A-W-H-O-N, called Codename Hélène. Um, This person was an expat Australian who uh, moved to France early on. I mean, still as a late teenager, I think. And um, she became involved with the resistance during the Second World War and was very instrumental in... in, um, Guiding uh, people out of occupied France, Jews and others, and eventually came back uh, and, uh, and headed uh, a resistance in the Auvergne that was instrumental in, um, in um, making sure that the Germans that were still hold up there uh, were prevented from uh, interfering with the Allied advance. So it's, it's a great, you know, that's a, a novel about an actual uh, person, right? So it is fiction, but it is also about an actual person. So all kinds of good
1: stuff. I'm going to take a look at, at all of them. I, I'm building up a book list and going to go through them, but I, I love these recommendations and I thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for being here uh, as, as our guest. Speak to a lawyer podcast. Really appreciate your time, your insight, your wisdom, your experience. and. Uh, like I said, even beyond this conversation, I thank you for your uh, sharing of that wisdom, your publications, etc. We all get so much out of it. Thank is you. there any final words before we let you go?
0: Um, you know, one thing that that always uh, struck me was is it's a quotation from Heinrich Heine. Um, Heine was a German poet and playwright. Um, who lived in the uh, 18th century, um, he was Jewish, and he wrote in one of his plays, he said, What does that mean? What that translates as is where they burn books, they will end up also in burning people. And of course... That's exactly what happened in Nazi Germany. Yes. Uh, First, they burnt all the the books of of, uh, uh, people that the authors that the Nazis didn't like, including Heine's books. Uh, But then they also ended up burning people.
1: That's right. I've heard that quote before, and I don't know where it was attributed to, who it was attributed to. So thank you for sharing. And uh, it's it's a deep insight.
0: It's something that we keep uh, keep uh, having to remember, right? And to not forget.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Thank you very much, Albert. We yeah, really everybody. appreciate it. We'll continue this conversation. Thank you.
0: I'll send you the list of books.
1: Okay. Be in touch with you soon. Thank you so much.
0: All the best. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.